Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here in this place with us now. We trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember once when I was in seminary, a visiting church historian gave a talk on some of the martyrs of the English Reformation, those who had been killed for their convictions and their faith. And there were a lot of them. For a few years there, England ping-ponged back and forth between Protestantism and Catholicism, and it was, well, a bloody time. Uh, Mary Tudor, Queen of England from 1553 to 1558, is literally known to history as Bloody Mary. And it was under her reign that many of the great English reformers were burned at the stake. Men to whom this church, Grace Anglican Church, traces our theological and liturgical heritage. Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer, known as the (coughs) Oxford Martyrs, just to name three. And this lecture that we attended was sort of a blow-by-blow account of the amazing steadfastness and unwavering faith of those martyrs, even as they suffered brutal tortures. Now, some of you may have heard the story of Hugh Latimer, who, as he burned at the stake, looked over at his friend Nicholas Ridley and said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. As he burned. It's amazing. But the thing I remember most clearly about that lecture aren't the amazing stories of the martyrs. It isn't the quality of their faith that I recall. Rather, it's the tenuousness of mine. I remember walking out of the room not feeling good about their faith, but feeling bad about mine. Feeling sure that if I were in their place... I would not have been able to show such fortitude and faithfulness. It's very much like the feeling I sometimes get when I read a passage of Scripture like the end of Hebrews 11, isn't it? It comes off kind of like a lecture about wonderfully faithful people. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death, sawn in two, 
They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Exactly what, I ask myself, have I suffered for my faith? Torture? Imprisonment? Martyrdom? Not exactly. A few awkward family conversations at the holidays, perhaps. Some eye rolls when I explain how the ACNA came to be. But no stoning for me. Never sawn in two. Never burned at the stake. And in this light, feeling badly about myself and wondering about the quality of my faith, the next verses become impossible to understand properly. Therefore, we read, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. It's so tempting to read this passage, this list of saints and what they accomplished and suffered and think like I did walking out of that lecture about the Anglican martyrs that you would fold where they stood strong. At best, you come out convicted, thinking something like, how can I make sure that I'm counted as one of their number? At worst, you come out crushed, thinking something like, I'll never be good enough to be counted as one of their number. Either way, you've made the passage about you and your qualifications or lack thereof. You've made it about what you need to do. And then in that light, having read it that way, it makes all the sense in the world to read the next sentence about running the race with perseverance and make that about you too. It's easy to think that if you're not doing what they did, suffering in the way that they suffered, overcoming in the way that they overcame, that you're just not running the race properly. And maybe you're not going to make it into that great cloud of witnesses at all. But you know what? You know what might be helpful? Let's take the focus off of you for a second, because this passage is not about you. It's about Jesus. And to see how it's about Jesus, let's look at the life of one of these saints, one of these members of the great cloud of witnesses. For efficiency's sake, let's look at one that you already know something about, David. He's on this list. And rather than consider his whole life, let's look at one famous Incident. I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 and following. And remember, as I read this to you, that what you're going to hear is somebody, in this case a prophet, speaking to David, a member of this great cloud of witnesses, about the quality of his life, the quality of his witness and his faith. 2 Samuel Chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Why have you, David, 
despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You remember the story, right? David, the king, sees a beautiful but married woman and decides that he wants her for himself. He takes her into his bed and sends her husband, a loyal general in his army, to his death in war. And I mean that literally. He tells the man's commander to send him into the thickest, most dangerous part of the fighting, the very front lines, and then to pull back from him. That's why David is here accused of having despised the word of the Lord and having done what is evil in his sight, lust, adultery, murder. That's David, a member in good standing of the great cloud of witnesses. Now, you might think I'm telling you the story of David to make you feel less badly about yourself. But that's not it at all. I'm reminding you about David, not to tell you that you're not so bad, but to tell you that he was just as bad as you. And if we investigate the lives of these saints on Hebrews' list, or any of the Oxford martyrs, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, we'll find the exact same thing. We'll find the exact same thing in their lives that we find in our lives. Profound brokenness and sin. And so it turns out that the great cloud of witnesses is full of broken sinners. Which means that to the extent that we have seen them in our minds as a holy example of righteous life to live up to, we've misinterpreted this text altogether. It turns out that our subconscious redefinition of them as a great cloud of righteous people is all wrong. And you know what? We had a clue. It was right there in the name. Hebrews calls them a great cloud of witnesses. That should have set off alarm bells. To what, we must ask, are they witnesses? What have they seen? What do they know? Well, let's read a little more of David's story to see what he was witness to. Now, after the prophet Nathan rebukes David, the king, for his murder of Uriah and his taking of Bathsheba to be his own wife, The story takes an amazing turn. In fact, buried in there is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. You don't see this on inspirational art in anybody's home or held up on signs at sporting events. But I want this verse right up there with John 3.16. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. One verse. So simple. 
And yet, some of the most powerful words ever spoken. David has been confronted with his sin. He is made witness to his need. His eyes are opened and he breaks down. He confesses. And then he is witness to something else. He is witness to the miraculous grace of God. His sins are put away. These are the two things that the great cloud of witnesses are witness to. They are witness to their own brokenness. They are aware of their own sin. And they are witness to that sin, red as scarlet, being washed white as snow. And it is to these things that we can be witnesses. Let us open our eyes and our hearts and be witness to our need. And then be witness to God's amazing grace. It was Thomas Cranmer, author of our prayer book and one of those martyrs whose life made me feel bad. Who made sure that we say the prayer of humble access each week. And why? Because he knew that he himself was unworthy even to gather up the crumbs under God's table. He was witness to his need. And he had faith that God would meet that need with grace. That God's character is always to have mercy. And that faith kept him company and bore him up through every trial. He was witness to Christ's accomplishment for him. Cranmer didn't have faith in himself. He had faith in God. And how is amazing faith like this possible? By amazing grace. Back in Hebrews, we have the enabling words and the name of God's grace to us. Chapter 12 and verse 2, Jesus, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is Jesus's endurance of the cross that allows our sins to be put away and allows David and the rest of the great cloud of witnesses and us To endure the race. To put that another way, it is Jesus' victory in the race that allows us to run the race at all. He has already won. And so we can run. Last week, we talked about Jesus' life and death and resurrection being the bomb that went off in the middle of history, the the detonation that sent salvation both forward and backward in time. David, a profound sinner, was not saved by the good things he did or by the strength of his faith or even by the quality of his confession. He was saved by Jesus. Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley were not saved by the power of their faith in the face of torture. They were saved by Jesus. And you are not saved by anything you have offered, are offering, or will ever offer to God. You are saved by Jesus. 
In Hebrews 11, we read about the heavenly city that God is preparing for his children. In verse 10 of that chapter, we see Abraham looking forward to that city, a city that has a solid and sure foundation, unlike the world we live in now. We see Abraham looking forward to this city. It says, whose designer and builder is God. Notice the completeness of God's work here. He designs the city and he builds it. From blueprints through construction to ribbon cutting. The work on this heavenly city is God's and God's alone. He builds a new city for us and reserves for himself every step of its construction. And guess what? I have good news. He's doing the very same thing with the new you that he's creating too. One day... All of this will pass away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It will be populated by people who are new creations, but not by people who have, by their own endurance or fitness or faith, recreated themselves. No. This, too, is God's work alone. And it's happening right now. We, quote, Run with endurance the race that is set before us, we read in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. King David was saved by Christ and Christ alone. Thomas Cranmer was saved by Christ and Christ alone. And you are saved by Christ and Christ alone. He founded your faith. He brought it into being in the first place, and he perfects your faith. He brings it to completion. By his death, he has created you anew from design through construction to ribbon cutting. Jesus does everything. So here is good news. We don't run the race of life struggling to run it in such a way that we might one day be counted among the great cloud of witnesses. Instead, we can run because we are among the great cloud of witnesses. We are witness to what they were witness to. We have, like David, had our sin revealed to us, whether it's a prophet, a preacher, the beauty of creation, the inspired text of scripture, or even our own conscience, we have seen our wickedness. It is unavoidable. Try as we might, this bare truth keeps raising its ugly head. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's one of the main reasons we have gathered here this morning, to admit that we have been witnesses to bad news. We have not done those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. But we have also gathered here to celebrate good news. We are witnesses to the saving work of Jesus Christ. That great cloud of witnesses have seen the promises of God fulfilled, and so have we. The finished work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection has happened. 
Our sin has been put away. And on account of Christ, we will not die. And so now, you can run. Now you can live. Run to the Word, reminding yourself of God's amazing redemption of sinners. Run to confession, offering your failure to God. Run to the creed, reaffirming your faith in who He is and what He has done for you in Jesus. And run to the table, filling yourself once again with Christ's body and blood broken and shed for you. Witness afresh what Christ has accomplished, the salvation of a sinner. You, you are a new creation in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.